I want to say uh, personally a personal word about Mr. Augustine. I know a lot of you have just heard it and were all of us who heard are very shaken by that. He was one of our most loving members and we all loved him and liked the wonderful uh, personality and enthusiasm that he uh, portrayed so well and we're going to miss him very, very much. Uh, I was over at the hospital with him the other day. My wife and I were both there for about an hour and uh, spent time, and I got to meet his son named Michael. My older son's named Michael, but it's his middle son. And he said, I was talking about his father, and he said, well, my dad really lived the life of ten men. And uh, he knew a lot about his dad, obviously, although he was his dad was quite a bit older and had lived a long time before Michael was born. But uh, he, I talked to Mrs. Gustin also, and she felt the same way, even though she's terribly sorry, and they were very close, as you know. But uh, he got to travel all over the world, and to India and China and various other places, all over parts of Africa, and actually lived in various parts of the United States and the Middle East, and lived about eight years in Britain, lived several years on a beautiful uh, chateau, type place overlooking uh, the Mediterranean uh, Sea from in southern Spain, the Spanish Riviera, and they were very blessed because he, he was able to save money because he said he didn't have any place to spend it. He was in the oil business, and a lot of that time he was not married. He lived in Quonset Hut type places in the Middle East, and so at any rate, uh, he had a wonderful life overall. He was not a young man, and uh, he was 82 years old. So he was given 12 years beyond King David, who died 3,000 years ago, old and full of days at age 70. So Mr. Gustin and I, just, you know, we both had problems. And, of course, I had my stroke before he had his stroke, and we discussed this, that we were living on borrowed time. Dr. Ralph Merrill, our first Ambassador College physician, way back in the 1950s, I got well acquainted with him for a number of reasons, and he mentioned how when you get past 70, you're living on borrowed time. That's the term he used, that God is giving us extra time. So we're grateful that he gave Mr. Gustin 12 extra years, and he certainly lived a very full life. And as his son said, my dad lived 10 lives. And I think about, you know, many people, I know my father and probably grandfather as well. They got to do various things, but they didn't get to travel all over the world. They didn't get to see all the things and do all the things that Mr. Gustin got to do. So he did have a very full life, and we're grateful we could know him. I got to know him five or six years ago. He was a very enthusiastic member of our board over in Britain, and we would have our meetings up in Scotland in this little country hotel and then sometimes he would take us out later uh, and host us for various things, or in London as well when we had one or two meetings there. He was always very generous, very loving individual. So we certainly will miss him, but we're glad we did. he did have such a long life and a wonderful life. And uh, he and I kidded about it, and, and I still do. You know, I, I, I could die any time because I'm 78 and a half, and I've had one stroke. So I just say that as one who's in the similar thing. God has blessed me with a long life. I have no complaints. I don't think Mr. Gustin felt that way either. I talked to his wife. She called me last night and then told me about it a few minutes after he died. And I asked her, as I discussed it with Mr. Apartheid and Dr. Winnale, 
and Mr. Uh, Ames the other day. We were having a meeting over here in the media, a little dedication in the media building. And if they thought it was good, if we go ahead with the fun show, some of you might think, well, we would cancel that. But Mr. Apartian, who knew Mr. Gustin very well in a personal sense, said, well, I think Mr. Gustin would want us to go right on. So I mentioned that to Mrs. Gustin last night, and she said, oh, yes, he wouldn't want you to cancel that. That's the first thing he would want to attend if he were here, and he'd want you to go right on. So we will have the fun show, but we can certainly maybe make it dedicate some uh, some portion, some song or something to Mr. Gustin, and uh, we certainly will miss him very, very much, but grateful that he lived such a rich and a long life, 12 years beyond King David. So anyway, let's take these things in the right way. And as I've said before, maybe I don't want to frighten you out there, but I, I hope we all understand, brethren, we will not all live to be a 100 years old. I, I, have, I guess you figured that out by now. So we have a lot of old folks here. I'm not trying to frighten the rest of you old folks. I am one. But, you know, over the next two to four years, a number may go to sleep. And we don't want to be shaken by that. We must not be shaken by that in the wrong way. I don't think the other older people would want you to be. I certainly don't want you to be if some of us go to sleep. They're going to be horrible. And I'm not exaggerating. You know that when you read your Bible. Read Deuteronomy 28 again. Just Deuteronomy chapter 28. It's not going to be fun stuff. We're going to have horrible lack of food, probably food riots, water riots, people raging up and down our cities, people crying out for help. And people going down and down, and our nation's going down, and our face being pushed right down in the mud, so to speak, nationally. And we don't like to see that happen to our nation, but that is what's happening and beginning to happen. So if some of us go to sleep before the end, that may actually be a blessing. We don't have to live through that awful, awful stuff. So let's pray for one another. When my daughter Elizabeth left home, Back in 1970, early 75, she, we were still in Brickett Wood, and she'd been accepted, but they closed the college the previous summer. We thought they might reopen, but then realized they didn't. Anyway, she went back. She flew all the way then from uh, Brickett Wood from London, England, over to uh, Texas and attended Big Sandy for that semester, maybe the next year or so, too. I don't remember. But I remember writing an article in the old Plain Truth, uh, Love Them Now, you have to love each other now. They may not be here next week. So love each other now. Appreciate what Mr. Gustin did while he was with us. Be kind to one another now. Forgive each other now. You may not have another chance later. As the saying is, we may not walk this way again. So love each other now. And we can appreciate what Mr. Gustin did while he was with us. Well, let's get into the sermon today, but I did want to mention those things to you, brethren, so you could understand the big picture of what this is all about. And we will never forget Mr. Gustin, and he certainly added a richness to our lives. But let's carry on as he would want us to and as Jesus Christ would want us to. What is true Christianity all about? Most of you know, without me giving a lot of scriptures, you know, it says in Revelation 12:9 that Satan has deceived all nations or has deceived the whole world. And scripture after scripture we cite over and over, as you know, tells us that Satan has done a very thorough job on this world of deceiving people. And he has deceived them about 
the nature of Christianity. And you've got the Catholic Christianity where they worship Mary. And as my wife and I have been in these churches, I've told you in Europe and in St. Peter's, they have these big side altars and these women will turn. They've been praying before these statues of St. Anne or St. John or St. Joseph or St. whoever it is, Lucretia. And they're turning women. They have tears running down their face. They have been worshiping this statue. They're very sincere women. Very sincere. They're crying. They're shaken up. And they've been praying to this statue. And they have this ritual. And the Church of England has a different kind of ritual. Why did the Church of England, why does it even exist? Because of the sexual lust of Henry VIII. That's the only reason it existed. You ought to look into it. I wrote my thesis on the Protestant Reformation. He was lusting after a young woman named Anne Bolin. And the Pope wouldn't give him a dispensation to put another woman away he was married to and marry her. So anyway, he started the Church of England. <laughs> and, you know, these churches, how did they start? Martin Luther was a Catholic priest, and he was shaken up by the Catholics, and so he rebelled against some of the laws of the church, but he began to think you had to rebel against the entire law of God. And, of course, he called the epistle of James an epistle of straw, because James tells us so clearly to obey God's laws. I don't know why he didn't call First, Second, and Third John that same thing, because, you know, it tells you there also to obey God's laws. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. The commandments, that, of course, is First John 2, 4. But Martin Luther was a totally deceived individual, just a Catholic priest who changed a little bit, but left most of the whole Babylonian approach to life the same way in Protestant so-called Christianity. So Satan has done a very thorough job. The Christianity of this world, brethren, is a mixture of good and evil. And most of us realize that. And the world is suffering terribly. That's one reason a lot of very highly intelligent people, they're not stupid, they have high IQs. This Richard uh, Dawkins and uh, Christopher Hitchens and these other big guys that write these books against Christianity, they're atheists or agnostics or whatever, some of them have very high IQs because they see what they think is Christianity and it is not Christianity, if you follow me. It doesn't make sense to them. Here are all the Christians in the North, Northern Methodists and Baptists and Presbyterians attacking the Christians in the South in the so-called Civil War and they're fighting and butchering one of the most bloody wars in history. And because the men were all Anglo-Saxon, they were going hard at each other and all this kind of thing. It was very bloody. But they belong to the same churches, some of them. The Catholics, you'll have the, the Catholic Germans charging up one side of the ridge and the Catholic French charging the other side of the ridge with their bayonets and they poke it into each other and then they go home to their same church when they get to go home a little bit later. So these millions of Catholics are attacking these other millions of Catholics. How would you like it if the... A uh, church in uh, Kansas City, they're bigger than we are. How would you like it if they t uh, decided to declare war on the Charlotte church? <laughs> you know what I mean? We just laugh. That's crazy. That would never happen. But that has happened all over the world. In a sense, it's not the church, but just people in those churches in these various nations. They don't understand. God has blinded them. So let's begin to get the picture. Let's turn, if you would, back to Genesis chapter 1. We had all better recapture true Christianity and understand more thoroughly than maybe even some of us do in God's church what it really involves. 
Back in Genesis, brethren, chapter 1, or I'm sorry, I'm going to be in chapter 2, chapter 2 and verse 7, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The uh, old King James has living soul, but of course the new King James has living being. We're not a soul, we have a soul. Uh, well, excuse me, we don't have a soul, we are a soul. We became a living soul. <laughs> anyway, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there He put the man out of the ground. He made every tree. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God put that in there. And then later, uh, He tells uh, man... He put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it and keep it. Verse uh, 15 and verse 16, The Lord God commanded the man, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Or some of the commentaries, the Hebrew is dying, you shall die. In other words, he wasn't going to kill them right then, but they would be cut off and not have eternal life. And they could have. Man had obeyed God from the beginning. It would be like the tomorrow's world. They would never perhaps even die the first death, especially as in the great white throne judgment. They would just keep right on living until, uh, or be made spirit at the end of their lives. Dying you shall die. The Lord God said it is not well. And then he talks about creating help for him. So you're not to take of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was first God's first great command. And man began to do that right away. In other words, he began to take what? And that's what we've had ever since in, in so-called Christianity, but the various other religions of the world and the religions, uh, the politics and the educational system, everything, a mixture. It's not all bad. We say the world's all bad. No, it's not all bad. Methodism, I grew up in Methodism. Is it all bad? No. They're, they tell you, in a sense, well, be good and be nice and love the Lord and you'll go to heaven. But they don't tell you any details of how to do it or they don't talk about the Ten Commandments in detail because they don't believe that. But they intend well. A lot of them are very nice people. I had very nice relatives and I appreciate it. That much of the Bible is better than nothing. But it's a mixture of good and evil. You see, that's the point. It's a mixture of good and evil. And in the end, and the way the world goes under the influence of Satan the devil, it turns out that the evil dominates in the end. That's why the Methodists in the north could fight the Methodists in the south. That's why the Catholics in France could fight the Catholics, the same church members across the ridge over in Germany or whatever. All over the world. Their knowledge of God is a mixture of good and evil. It's not fully what God wants at all. So we have to understand that. So what is a genuine Christian? That's my topic for today. Who is, I meant to say, who is a genuine Christian? I'm going to give you eight markers, so to speak, to think about. I started to make it seven, be the perfect number, but you know, you can come up seven, twelve, twenty-one, which I've often done. But at any rate, it's really, I think in my way I'm approaching this, you could come up with ten or fifteen, I know, but I just think eight basic things come to mind as I thought and prayed about this off and on for many years. 
So here's number one of these eight key uh, markers to, to designate and to show who is a true Christian. And I hope all of you can think about this. And as Mr. Pyle said, the Passover is approaching and we need to examine ourselves and we need to think about it. Are we a true Christian or not? Number one, a true Christian really believes uh, in uh, believes in and fears. And I'll explain that. Most of you know what the fear of God is and not fear of a monster. He really believes in and fears the Creator, God of the Bible. There are all kinds of concepts of God. So if you just say God, that doesn't define it. The Creator God, the God that created the heavens and the earth and made your mind. Your mind is able to conjure up various ideas about God. Who made your mind? Did it just happen? Or didn't something greater than your mind have to make your mind? Well, that's pretty easy for a sane person to figure out, I think. But at any rate, unless their mind is simply jarred loose from sanity by Satan the devil in this world, a true Christian really fears and respects the God of the Bible. Turn back, if you would, to this point. Just give some scriptures each uh, t- on one of these points. In back in Hebrews chapter eleven, the faith chapter, Hebrews eleven verse six. But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is. You must believe. You must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. So God wants you to believe those basic things. You must believe that He is the Creator God, the God of the Bible, when you understand it. Back in Proverbs chapter uh, 9 is a very basic principle back here. Uh, Let's turn back there uh, together, if you would. Uh, Proverbs chapter 9. And beginning in verse 7. He who reproves a scoffer gets shame for himself, but he who rebukes a wicked man gets himself a blemish. But Or do not reprove a scoffer, lest he hate you. If you reprove a scoffer, he'll sometimes make fun of you or try to reason around it or look down on you. But if you reprove in a right way, and we don't always do it perfectly, but a person who really understands, he will learn from that. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be wiser still, you see. He'll be willing to think and learn from that. Teach a just man and he will increase in learning. So then he goes on. The fear of the eternal, it's capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, the ever-living one, it literally means... The fear of the ever-living one is the beginning of wisdom. That awe of that great, powerful spirit being up there who gives you life and breath, who sits at the controls of the universe. The awe and the deep sense of respect and reverence for that great being. In Him we live and move and have our being. That awe of God, that is the beginning of wisdom. And you don't have wisdom or knowledge or understanding, true wisdom, unless you have that as the starting point. So you've got to believe in God and have the fear of God. Then let's turn to Exodus, if you would. Exodus here, uh, chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 
And this is something we don't often think of, but what's the very most important thing? Verse 1, God spoke all these words saying, I am the eternal, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You see, you're to have that awe. You're to believe in that God and put Him ahead of everything else. Nothing else is as important. And so when you have that starting point, then everything else comes out right. That is the starting point. Genuine belief in the true God, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, He identifies Himself many times, the Creator God. So that is the beginning. Now let's go to the second point, the second marker to show who is a true Christian. A true Christian truly believes and uh, strives to obey the Bible. Obviously, we don't do it perfectly, but he strives to obey it and overall does walk in that way of life. A true Christian truly believes. People say, you know, all these uh, Protestant churches, our, our belief is based on the Bible and only the Bible. You say, well, what about the fourth? Well, you know, the fourth commandment, blah, 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 and they have a way of doing away. What about killing people? Well, you know, you can do that too. What about divorce and remarriage for any reason? Well, we can explain that. So they're able to explain everything away, but I'm talking about someone who really takes the Bible literally and is willing to do what the Bible says. Luke 4, verse 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God, Jesus Christ said. That's one of the first things he said, as a matter of fact, as you start reading the New Testament. Man shall live by every word of God. And the only word of God, written word of God, was the Old Testament at that point. Then you go uh, to uh, Luke 6, Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Jesus also said, Why call me you me, Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Why do people call Jesus Lord? Then they turn right around and do everything He said not to do. And then they do everything, uh, do not do everything He said to do. As Mr. Armstrong said a number of times, if the Bible had commanded us to keep Christmas, very few people would keep it. I know a lot of you may not understand that. You're all laughing. I think most of you do understand there's something in human nature that just resents God and resents the Bible. And the Bible, it just works out that way. God says back in Romans 8, 7, the carnal mind, Romans 8, verse 7, the carnal mind is enmity against God, a hostile against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. That is the carnal mind. I'm just reciting that from memory, so I think I have it straight. Anyway, so let's understand that a true Christian really believes and strives to obey this Word, the inspired Word of God. Why call Jesus Lord, and yet you won't do what He says? And He is the one who inspired the Bible. And most of us know that. The true, the third marker of a true Christian is a true Christian has come to a deep repentance a profound repentance before God and a heartfelt acceptance of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. I'm putting those both together. When I was counseling students for many decades or a couple of decades or three at least as a leading one of the main teachers, biblical teachers at Ambassador College, 
I got to baptize more than most of the other ministers simply because I taught the freshman Bible class. I was the first one there they would have, so they would often ask me to baptize them. So I baptized hundreds of students. I don't have any idea, but I'm sure it's in the hundreds. I estimated one time. But anyway, it doesn't make any difference. I was just there, and it was handy, and and I was uh, one of the main counselors too. I baptized a number of people who were no more converted than a jackrabbit or a bedbug, I later came to realize. So did Mr. Armstrong. I know he baptized some young woman one time who was just 16, and she was very emotional, and, and she kind of flipped out, and then she came back, and she got herself baptized by Dr. Hay, uh, and then uh, she flipped out again, and then somehow she even talked me into baptizing her later, and then she flipped out again, and I think it was either Dennis Luker or Carlton Smith called me from the Bay Area that Joanne, whatever, it wasn't Joanne, I'm making up a name here, that she was up there and she wanted to be baptized again. Well, this would have been number four. <laughs> she was emotional and very shallow, very quick-minded. She had a high IQ, but she had no understanding. Sometimes a high IQ person can be very bright on the surface, but they lack understanding. Please understand that. There are different facets of intelligence. One is IQ type of intelligence to read and repeat back information quickly. Another part of human intelligence is understanding that is grasping the ultimate reasons, causes, and effects of things and the big picture goal of human life and so on. And then wisdom is the ability to take specific points of knowledge in relation to the purpose of life and make right decisions, wisdom to make right decisions. All three are important. Some people have knowledge but not, uh, not wisdom or not understanding. Anyway, I'm just pointing that out. I came to realize that a lot of people, especially the women, would sometimes fool me because some of these young girls, I could figure the evil young men out and they would usually admit, well, they'd had... they'd. You know, they'd been in fights or they'd lusted after girls or they'd done bad things. But the young girls that sit there and look all pretty and innocent, I think, well, they've never been anywhere and done anything. I guess, you know, they don't they didn't have anything to repent of. Then they'd flip out later. And some of the fellows slipped out too. But all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, the Bible says. And I found that many times in Ambassador College, the students would come up to their end of their freshman year or into their sophomore year, and maybe this fella had been dating this freshman girl all through the freshman year and then the sophomore year, and they began to get kind of interested, which they shouldn't have done so fast, but that's another point. <laughs> we were trying to keep them apart as long as possible <laughs> with all of our rules. And uh, so then the girl would get baptized. And then the fellow would think, well, Joanne, I'm using Joanne here all the time. Joanne got baptized. Maybe I'd better get baptized if I think I shouldn't date her because she's in the church. I'm not in the church and all this kind of stuff. So he would get dunked in the water or else they'd get up to a certain point and they would want to join the club. Now, they didn't say I'm going to join the club, but you know what I mean. It was just sort of expected. Okay, the next step is to get dunked in the water. You grow up in the church and you join the club. You get, you get dunked in the water. And so you're okay. No, you're not okay. Some of you may have gone through that. may help some of you who have gone through that kind of baptism. So you need to examine yourself. And I don't want you to come back 
for the fourth time like Joanne, <laughs> but sometimes you do need to be baptized properly if you've never really repented and baptized properly in the first place. Because I can't give you the Holy Spirit. Mr. Ames can't give you the Holy Spirit. None of our ministers can give you the Holy Spirit. I don't care who baptizes you. Only God can give you the Holy Spirit. And He will not give you the Holy Spirit unless you go through a genuine conversion process. That's the thing you need to understand. So let's turn back. There are many scriptures. This would be a whole sermon. Some of our other men may have to pick up and and uh, we could preach whole sermons on each one of these points here, of course. But back in Acts chapter 2, if you turn there, I better get some uh, tea here. <clears throat> Here's the one of the most fundamental scriptures, as most of you know about baptism. Acts 2 and verse 36. Peter is preaching to the Jews there on Pentecost. And he said, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to the Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent. Now what does repentance mean, brethren? As Mr. Armstrong said, and it is true, repentance does mean just to be sorry. A lot of drunk men wake up Sunday morning after a Saturday night binge and they're sorry. They have a blinding headache and they're kind of sorry they got drunk or if their wife starts yelling at them, they're sorry they got caught or whatever it is. But they're not repentant because they'll go right back again next Saturday night and get drunk all over. Repentance means to be so sorry, genuinely broken up, that you're willing to change and go the other way. And you make a commitment to do that. That's part of repentance. So sorry that you make a genuine effort to turn and go the other way. So repent. Heartfelt change, a deep sense of sorrow, not just human remorse, but willingness to change. And let every one of you be baptized. And baptism, of course, pictures the burial you read Romans 6, if you want to put down this reference. Romans 6, verses 1 to 6, it says we are buried with Christ in baptism. Baptism going down in the water is a picture of burial. As you know, there are thousands, perhaps over the years, hundreds of thousands of men and women buried at sea. Where did they bury all the people from the Lusitania and from the Titanic? Well, they were just, most of their bodies never washed up. They were just floated in the you know, went to the bottom of the sea or were eaten by fish or whatever. And many men in time of war, they couldn't bring the ship all the way back in, so they would simply put some weights on their body and have a service, then throw them overboard, or, you know, they'd scoot them over in this chute or something, but they had the chaplain would pronounce some words and they'd kind of scoot them off the ship and their body sank to the bottom of the sea. They were buried at sea. Baptism is a picture of burial. You bury your old self. You are saying, I am letting the old self die. I am going to completely give my life to God. It is not my life anymore. It is God's life. So you repent. And then you're baptized and you're burying your old self in the name, which means by the authority of Jesus Christ. You're doing it because you believe in Christ. You're accepting Christ as your Savior who died for you and you're accepting Christ as your Lord. 
The Protestants emphasize he died for you and they have all these sweet songs and some of that's all right as far as it goes. But again, it's a mixture of good and evil. Just saying we love the Lord and that, that old, they, they sing songs about the old rugged cross and get all sentimental about the old rugged cross. But what if Christ were put to death in the electric chair? Would they say, well, we, well the sweet old electric chair or whatever, that, that rope, Mr. <laughs> Pilate, the, the nice old rope or something. You see what I mean? We're not to worship a cross or think about it that way. We worship Christ. Christ died for us. He who had been with God from eternity was the second personality in the family of God, emptied himself, as it says in Philippians 2. And verse 7, the Greek word, kenosis, emptied himself of the glory and the complete power he had. And he had much less power and glory when he came down into the human flesh so he could die. And he was willing to take our nature on himself and die for us as the personality who had been God, the personality who actually created the human race. Therefore, because of that, his life was worth more than all of ours put together. So he died for us, and we should have profound feeling about that, brethren, not light feeling. Let's not go the other extreme just because the Protestants make a big deal of that. They say, well, it's oh, no, that's important. It's just they have misused it, and that's all they have sometimes, and they have even that sometimes in a wrong way. So understand, you're to have a profound feeling about how Christ died for you, that he is your Savior who reconciled you to God. And also, He is your Lord and Master, your living head, the living head over God's church, and your coming King. You think of all those, and we mention all those things usually in the baptismal ceremony. Now we say, I now baptize you uh, in the name of Jesus Christ, or you having accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord, uh, your, your Master, and your High Priest, your soon coming King. And some of those statements are mentioned. Different ministers say it in different ways. But we need to understand that when we give our life to God, that we make a real commitment to have Christ be our Lord, our Master, and we're accepting His sacrifice and payment for our sins with deep feeling after having really repented. I mean, say, God, I've been wrong. As Mr. Armstrong said, he came to the place where he was just shaken to the depths of his being. He felt like a burned-out hunk of junk. He felt his life was worth nothing. He said, I'm, my life is not worth a, anything. I'm just giving it to you, God, if you can use it. And I'm sure at that point he meant that, not because he was perfect, because I can tell you, well, Mr. Armstrong did this and did that and so on, but having known him for 36 years pretty well, I'm sure he meant that. He meant it, and he meant to give his life to God. The fruits show that. Anyway, we need to have that deep, profound feeling about Jesus Christ as our Savior, our High Priest, our Living Head, and our Coming King. He is our Lord and Master. As it says, I think, somewhere there in Ephesians, we serve the Lord Christ. He's the one we're serving. He is our Lord. He is our Master. He is our Head. So we want to go through that genuine experience of repentance, which very few have done. And uh, frankly, in this world today and in God's church, a number have just, uh, they wanted to just uh, join the club or be able to date this girl or whatever it is. They got dumped, but they didn't have that heartfelt repentance, a complete, total surrender to God. No more 
No more barriers, no more arguments, no more little games anymore. Back in Luke chapter 14, Luke 14 beginning in verse 25, great multitudes went with Christ and he turned and said to them, this is Luke 14 verse 26 now, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, and the commentary show that Greek word is a comparative term, in other words, if does not love less by comparison, his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. You've got to love God more than anything if you see something good and beautiful and so forth in your wife. Where did it come from? God put it there. You worship God. You don't worship your wife or your husband or your children or anyone else. You worship God. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You've got to be willing to go through trials and tests of all kinds. And then he describes being counting the cost. You're going to build a tower, a skyscraper. Do you have the maybe hundreds of millions of dollars loans from big insurance companies? Those loans are hard to get right now in our economy. <laughs> kind of kidding me. You know what I mean? Do you have those loans? Do you have the kind of contractor who can really follow through and get that done? Do you have the right kind of planning? Do you know that you're going to have that skyscraper in the right place where you can rent out all the rooms later and not go broke and all the rest of it? You've got to sit down and think the thing through before you're converted. Am I going to really give my life to God? Do I mean it? Am I going to let Christ rule me? Am I going to live by every word of God? Or I just want to be nice or have approval from other human beings or play the game? Don't play the game, brethren. Don't do it. No man can give you the Holy Spirit. Only God can give you the Holy Spirit. So come to genuine repentance. He says at the end here, so likewise, verse 33, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has. He cannot be my disciple. In your heart, you've got to say, I give up everything. I don't have any more games to play. I'm just giving my life to God. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, the manure pile. Uh, he says, but men, throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So you've got to realize we're to be the salt of the earth. God doesn't want us to be all bland and we just sort of attend church and it has no great meaning. It's to be the burning passion of our lives. We want to please our Creator. We want to prepare the way for His kingdom. We seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, Jesus said. Remember back in... Matthew 6.33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. So that's the biggest thing, and we've got to have that attitude. That is what a true Christian has, that kind of conversion. So understand, the fourth uh, key marker of a true Christian, a true Christian grows. He doesn't just stay the same all the time. Some people say, well, you're just the same as you were 50 years ago or 30 years ago. And I think, ooh, I hope not. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, they may think uh, same things are similar, but we hope that we have grown. Maybe they're not perfect yet. Nobody's perfect till we're made spirit. But we'd better not remain the same. A true Christian grows in love, in wisdom, and in self-control. 
and in every aspect of Christianity, of course. You turn back to Second Peter, if you would, back near the end here of the uh, New Testament. Second Peter, try to turn there quickly. And it's interesting, I don't have time to go through all this, but he's talking back here in, in uh, verse uh, 15 about Paul and has written to you as in all his epistles speaking in some, them of some things hard to understand, which those who are untaught and unstable twist. They pervert Paul's writings as they do the other scriptures. So he indicates, Peter, that Paul's writings were scripture. You see, if you read that carefully, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, since you know these things beforehand, beware, lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away, and it says, by the error of the wicked, but the actual Greek, which is more correctly translated in the New International Version, the most of the time they're wrong. We kind of kid about them being the NIV, you know, the non-inspired version. <laughs> but here they are correct, and you look it up in the Greek, and the Greek word here means lawlessness, being led away with the error of lawless men. Why does he say lawless men? Well, because men twist the very writings of Paul he'd been talking about. That's the main part of the Bible they grab onto to try to twist the Bible to say Paul did away with God's laws. And they were already starting that, and Peter has to warn them about it at the end of his own life. He lived past Paul. Paul was apparently killed first. And Peter lived on a few more years, or another year or two at least. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Think about it. Grow in the graciousness you could put in there. I like to think about it that way in some commentaries. Grow in the graciousness, the love, the kindness, the outflowing concern and warmth, the graciousness, and in the knowledge. It's not just a base based on human imagination, but grow in the graciousness and the knowledge of our Lord. He is our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen or to grow in the graciousness of Christ. Every day that we live as best we can, but certainly we should try to grow every month where we begin to realize we're learning a little bit at least as we go along through this life. Grow in the graciousness and in the knowledge of Christ. That's what God wants us to do. And that's what a true Christian will do. A true Christian won't stay the same. A true Christian will grow and grow and grow. And if you're watching a human being that's really led by God, you'll see that. You may not see a lot, but you'll just see certain aspects of uh, God's character and that individual become more profound and other aspects of God's character he may not have had much before and they begin to take on life as he has more of Christ and Christ's Spirit living within him. You grow in the graciousness and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So a true Christian does not remain stagnant. A true Christian grows. Again, you know, you go to the churches of this world, not to pick on them, but most of them are people that get in them. They, they're pretty much the same from age 15 to 75 years of age. You know what I mean? They'll carry right on. And I remember living with one guy that was a member of one of these big churches this summer before I came to Ambassador College. And he said, well, uh, he gave me half his money about we were living in a government dam out out from Boise, Idaho, and uh, we went down there about every other week or once a month. I think it was really every other week we'd go down and have fun in Boise. We'd stay in my second cousin's uh, 
basement, Lyle Cunningham's basement, where we could live for free. But we go out Saturday night and roam around. And this guy belonged in this great big denomination where they have all this uh, hocus pocus and penance and all this. And so he gave me half his money. He, he and I would have arguments about religion, but he knew I was sincere. He didn't trust the other guys. They had about six of us, so he gave his money to me, half of it. And I said, well, what are you going to do with your half? He says, well, you know. And I'd see him in these bars, and if we'd go by to have a beer, he was having all kinds of whiskeys, and he was be dancing with these uh, B girls. And so he was out drinking and fornicating and didn't make any bones about it. Then he said the other half he'd get back for me then, and then he'd take that into the priest the next morning and give God his half, and he'd spent, gave the devil his half the previous evening. And somehow this whole psychology is the way millions of people think. You can sort of buy off God, you know what I mean? And they, they don't think of it that way, but it's just something they grow up taking for granted. And you don't buy off God. You've got to have the character of Jesus Christ in you because God wants you to be like He is. He wants you to give you eternal life and have you have the character that makes you fit for eternal life. Otherwise, you would make yourself miserable and everyone else miserable if you didn't have Christ in you and if you didn't have that kind of character. So a true Christian grows in, that, in, in all these areas. Now, uh, one other thing I want to mention here, I better hurry along, but I want to take a little time on this here, uh, is Second Peter 1. Let's see if Second Peter... At the end of it, turn to Second Peter chapter 1. Here he talks about how God, through His divine power, verse 3, has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness, uh, by which have been giving us great and exceeding promises, verse 4, that through these, these promises, you might be partakers of the divine nature. God is giving us part of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence. And that's a characteristic of God. Be, be zealous. Why are the Laodiceans condemned? Do they have all kinds of bad ideas and morals and false doctrine? No. One word. Lukewarm. Think about it. Go back and read. That's all it says. Most of them were taught in the church and many were my former students and others and they are lukewarm. We didn't teach them that, but they've just kind of drifted over there and so they're nice people, but lukewarm. They don't have any fire in their belly to do fully the work of God, the will of God. Be diligent. Using all diligence adds your faith. So the first virtue is faith. You have that belief in God that I've already mentioned as a starting point. You've got to know God to believe in God, to fear God, add to your faith. Number one, faith, virtue. Virtue is strength of character. So you've got to add strength of character to that belief in God. And then to that, to virtue, you add knowledge because you could say, well, I think this, and you know, there have been these books about, about reflecting Christ. Well, you read them and most of them, they don't understand what Christ did. They don't take literally that he was a young Jew and kept the Sabbath and the holy days and that was important. They just make up in their imagination what they think Christ was like. If they saw the real Jesus Christ, I guess, in action, it might blow their mind. They've never known him. That's why you have to have knowledge, the knowledge of God from the Bible. 
But knowledge alone is not everything. You've got to have self-control. That comes next. You grow. You control the evil and you do the good. You, 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 you tell yourself no against the bad things and you make yourself act to do the good things. Self-control. And the self-control, the fourth thing is perseverance then. Don't give up and quit. You add perseverance. And to perseverance, godliness. You become like God in every way. But sometimes you can kind of be ethereal, you know, like the Catholics think they have all the blah, 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 domine, and they get up and they have all these bells and stuff going on and they think they're God's way up there. Some No, there's a kind of godliness. But if you have real godliness, you will also love other people. He who says, I love God and does not love his brother is a liar. Remember back in First John, you've got to love your brother because every human being is made in the image of God. So you've got to have brotherly kindness. That's the next point. And to brotherly kindness, love. Some of these are overlapping, of course, but you live have those seven virtues. Those seven virtues. For if these things are yours and abound, these virtues, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent. Yes, we're to be diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. You just believe on Christ? No, there are certain things you're supposed to do. No matter what the Protestants say, he says, do these things. You're supposed to obey God. And you're supposed to grow in grace and in knowledge, not according to human imagination, but the knowledge of God. If you do these things, you will never stumble, for so an everlasting, uh, so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You don't earn your way in by doing these things, but that's what's expected of you. You're to grow in grace and in knowledge, and if you don't grow... Satan will get at you and you will probably turn aside along the way. That's the thing to realize. So these are all things where a true Christian grows in uh, Christ's character. Now turn back, if you would, to Galatians chapter uh, 5. Galatians chapter 5, and I'm sure you know where I'm going here. Here's another aspect of this growing in Christ's character. Galatians 5 verse 22 the fruit of the Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit work? The fruit, the result of a person, of it in a person's life. Part of that fruit is we just read in Second Peter, put a different way, but here are this personal characteristics here. The fruit of the Spirit is love. That's the most important single thing in the universe. Faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Love, joy, you're to have joy, and you're to have peace. And you're not always just happy, happy, happy type person, but inside you have a peace of mind that the world does not have because you know God. Some of us can be a little bit sobered even today by the death of a loved one, but inside we know that our Father in heaven is there. It's going to work out all right. In the end, we win. In the end, we're all going to die if time goes on, but we don't oh, we're going to die. No, we, well, yes, we're going to die, but yes, we're also going to be resurrected. So we've got to think about that and have that peace of mind that passes all understanding and understand God's purpose. Peace, long-suffering, kindness, 
goodness, faithfulness. You have faith, gentleness, self-control. So you're gentle. You don't come on hard and ride on people too hard. Self-control. You discipline yourself to where you don't drink too much. You don't cuss. You don't misuse this and that and so forth. Self-control. And then you control yourself to get up every day and pray. You make yourself study the Bible. We've gone through that aspect of Christianity. All those things you make yourself do in a positive sense so you can have God's mind and God's character. You fast. That requires self-control. You fast regularly to seek your God. Against such there is no law, and those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and lusts. Yes, you buried the old self under the water. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So if you say, well, I live in the Spirit, and yet you've heard people talk all spiritual. Okay, if they live in the Spirit, let's see them walk in the Spirit. Walk according to the teachings of the Bible. That's what we're to do. Why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Well, I just love the Lord. Okay, fine. Why don't you keep His commandments? <laughs> you see the key thing. We've got to always think of that. We've got to get real because we can't play games with God. So all these things are part of true Christianity. A true Christian grows in the love and the wisdom and the self-control of Jesus Christ and the graciousness of Jesus Christ and His total character. All right, key number five now, the marker number five of true Christianity. A true Christian is willing to take correction. A true Christian is willing to take correction. Brethren, Mr. Armstrong said that as a key thing that he noticed many decades ago, and I've heard him repeat it uh, more than once. Probably Mr. Apartin has heard him talk about it, but he, he understood that. And that is very, very important. Uh, turn back here to Proverbs chapter 9 again. Proverbs chapter 9 and beginning in verse 7. He who reproves a scoffer gets shame for himself, and he who rebukes a wicked man gets himself a blemish. Do not reprove a scoffer, uh, lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. So you see him repeating some there. But that's the principle of God. A really dedicated man, a wise man, will take reproof all through the Proverbs. I could read you 15 or 20 other verses. Most of you know that. You just go through the Proverbs. It says this kind of thing again and again and again. And I would agree with Mr. Armstrong on that 100%. I came to Ambassador College 60 years ago this coming September, so I've just been around about 59 and a half years, I guess. But anyway, I've seen that really in, and I don't want to mention names. I'm a bad guy, but I have these names and pictures fly through my mind. But leading men, even leading ministers and students and people in the work, they would go along like this, but they could, they could take everything but correction. If you ever give them correction, it hurt their vanity. And they would flare, oh, don't talk to me that way, and so on. And uh, so uh, I, I better not go through examples or I'll take all the time. But you will learn that about people. If they're really conquered by God, they may not always agree with every aspect of your correction. And sometimes people have corrected me for the wrong thing. 
but I tried to take it. I didn't always do it perfectly, but tried to take it. Sometimes my father would correct me, sometimes really give me a hard whipping, not often, but a few times when I didn't deserve it. But then my mother would remind me there were many other times I did deserve it and he didn't spank me. So it all worked out. And that's the way it works. So you have to understand that, brethren. God rebukes and chastens every son he loves. And we've got to be willing to take correction from him. And sometimes we need to be willing to take correction even from his human servants because the church is the body of Christ. And if God guides his servants to correct you, you should try to take that correction, learn from it, think about it. Maybe there is more in it than you thought at first. Once in a long time, you'll find it's totally wrong. I remember one time I chased my son Michael all over the house and was uh, kind of trying to swat him and, and so on. And, and uh, then he kept saying, no, I didn't do it, and, and Elizabeth did it, and, and uh, she's not here to defend herself. But I finally I made her admit, yes, she was the one. So then I knelt down and hugged Michael and said, Michael, Daddy, sorry, I shouldn't have been spanking you. Elizabeth did that, and she, she talked her way out of it. So he, he was not guilty <laughs> on that occasion. Many other occasions he was, or Jimmy was, or the others. But at any rate... Uh, God is perfect in the way He corrects. We humans are not always perfect, but you've got to learn to take it, brethren. And if I weren't willing to take correction, I wouldn't be here. I've told you some of the stories. I would not be here if I had not been willing to take correction. Sometimes it was partly for a reason. Other times there seemed to be no good reason. But God was allowing it. He sensed that I needed the help and perhaps the, the testing, as Mr. Pyle brought out, he thought, well, Rod Meredith needs to be tested here. It hadn't been anything unusually evil, but it was a good test at the time. And just like this, uh, the stroke I have is a good test. You see, am I going to remain faithful and try to be positive in spite of this test? If I see myself dying, am I going to get mad and say, God, why didn't you heal me? Well, I can't do that. He's given me 78 and a half years. But if he heals me later in order to help carry on the work, I can say, well, thank God I don't deserve this, but you're doing it anyway, and be very grateful for that. But in any case, it's a test. It makes me study and think and pray more and, and, uh, and so on. So God, all, God lets all of us go through various tests, and we've got to try to take them in the right way. Uh, I don't always take the tests totally in the right way. I'm not trying to say I do. There are times uh, here when I prayed to God, I said, How long, oh God? I'm getting tired. It's been a long time. And uh, so on. He knows. Of course, I read King David's Psalms. He'd say, Make haste, oh God. And I read Psalm 41 and Psalm 38 and some of those Psalms where David was going through various tests in his life. Okay, let's turn to Hebrews chapter uh, 12, if you would. Hebrews chapter 12. And verse 4, You have not yet resisted the blood, striving against sin. Brethren, we've got to be willing to strive against sin. Really fight to overcome sin and be willing to take God's correction when we make mistakes too. And you've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by Him. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens, and He scourges every son whom He receives. And we go through these trials and tests where God corrects us through His Word. He will correct us through the ministry sometimes. He will correct us through 
maybe our health and just bring us down and things seem going wrong. And I have several things go wrong. I think, well, God is trying to teach me a lesson and I'd better learn that lesson. Try to understand that, brethren. Understand it. Learn from it. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? Now, I know in our society today, I was hearing a guy on the radio, I think just this morning, saying, well, you just have all this love and that's the way to train your children, just affirm them. Well, frankly, that's a lot of baloney because God speaks about chastening all the way through. You're to affirm them, but you're also to rebuke and chase them in the right way. And God commands you to over and over in the Bible. Uh, Notice verse 8, but if you are without chastening, spanking, chastening from God, of which we all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Think about that. Do you want to be illegitimate? If you're a real son of God, you will be chastened by God directly through bringing brought down and shaken or held things or struck down, or He will chasten you through the ministry or through His Word where you realize you've been wrong. And... uh I remember, yet God will forgive you. I remember one time Mr. Armstrong really corrected me strongly. And, uh, and boy, he yelled at me. And, and I was uh, embarrassed because uh, he was after a meeting. And my brother-in-law, who's still a dear friend, I talked to him from time to time, Berkman, there kind of sneaked around behind the library bookcases and he was listening to this. <laughs> no one else was listening. I thought, oh, I got very hard. He's hung around there listening. But I'd been kind of smart aleck to Mr. Armstrong and it was in just my second year of college and I didn't realize he was an apostle and he didn't realize he was an apostle either and I was far from perfect when I came to Ambassador College so I, mar- I, I mouthed off at him and uh, boy he let me have it he said you're the enemy of this college and he went oh I'm the enemy so I oh and he just really yelled at me but he forgave me when I changed and a few months later, he made me student body president. Blew my mind <laughs> how much he forgave. He saw I had changed and taken it. I went home and had tears in my eyes and asked God to forgive me and clean me up. Did I have a perfect attitude when he chased me? No. Frankly, I'd just come from Missouri and boxing. I thought I, may, I, you know, I was tempted to punch him and thought I would beat him up, the old man. And I had all these evil thoughts. Why does he talk to me that? Then I began to realize, no, and I really need this. And I mouthed off to him and I talked to one of the other students and, and or two of them and began to realize how wrong I was. And then I repented and he saw that repentance for several months. And then Raymond Cole had to go back up to Oregon because he had a kidney, a bleeding kidney or something go wrong and he wasn't able to carry on the second half of his term as student body president. And so Mr. Armstrong let me finish out his term and then be student body president the full next year. So I got to be student body president for about a year and a half. But I really blew my mind. I thought, wow, he calls me this, the enemy of the college. And then a few months later, I'm the student body president. So God is like that. You know, God took everything away from Job he chastened Job, chastened Job, chastened Job. You remember, his sons and daughters were killed and everything else went wrong and boils broke out on him and everything else went wrong and went wrong. And wow, then what happened? When Job finally learned the lesson, God gave him back double. He gave him back double. God is very merciful. So anyway, we want to understand that, but we've got to be willing to take chastening 
and understand this principle, if you're without chastening, of which we all become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. So be willing to take correction. And as I've said, brethren, I have noticed that people that will not take correction, they're either not converted at all or their correction is very, very shallow because they they have a defense mechanism. They don't want to admit things that are really wrong with them or their lives or their family or whatever it is. And we must not be like that if we're truly surrendered to God. Now, time flies here. Point number six. Uh, wait a minute, where am I? Anyway, point number six. I guess I have narrowed it down to seven points. Point number six, a true Christian surrenders self and gives himself as part of Christ's body and his government. So that's a key thing about Christianity too also. Notice 1 Corinthians 15. Better quit telling stories here and uh, <laughs> just read these scriptures. I hope you folks will forgive me. I said before, I, I in the, this stroke, I have a little bit of a, a disconnect uh, more than usual, and I, I tend to wander more and so on, but maybe you'll get things from my heart that can still help you. 1 Corinthians 15 and, uh, and verse... Uh, uh, oh my. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 27... My mind just wouldn't fall on it. No. Oh, I know what I'm doing. I wrote down 15. I'm at 12. 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Paul writes, Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. And God has appointed those in the church, first apostles, so God has a government in the church, second prophets, then teachers, miracles, gifts of healings, administrations. He puts administrators in charge of, you know, uh, Ebedia, as Mr. Ames, or in charge of uh, uh, the church administration, such as Dr. Winnale and various department heads. Christ overall guides the church and we're to respect those offices. We are the body of Christ, and we are so structured in this way by uh, Christ Himself, and we've got to understand that. Now let's go back to Ephesians uh, chapter 1, if you would. Ephesians talking about the mighty power of God. In verse 19, Ephesians 1 verse 20, this power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age which is to come. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him, Christ, to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christ is the living head of the church and He has placed apostles and you know evangelists and pastors and leaders in the church. And the Bible makes that very clear. So frankly, if a person surrenders to God, they're also going to surrender to be part of Christ's body 
They're going to be surrendered to be part of Christ's uh, 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 work, His church, His work, because He's doing a work. And each one of us ought to try with our best to do our part while we're here. While we're here, we may not be here. Give what you can while you can. I don't mean you should rush out and sell your house and do it now. I'm not talking about that. But give your life. Do everything you can to be an active part of the church of God and the work of God and show God that you deeply respect uh, the offices that He has placed and that you are submissive to Him and to His government because we are to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. God says back in in Second Peter 2, how the Lord knows how, after describing how He had to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, He says in Second Peter 2, verse 9, Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness, and despise authority. There is abroad in our society today a whole attitude of despising authority. Most of you know that. God hates that because that translates into despising your parents, despising your teachers, despising your bosses, despising God Himself. Don't do that. Despising authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed, They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. So you should not speak evil of dignitaries. We may find that some of these politicians play games but don't speak evil of them. You might discuss some kinds of the politics, but be careful if someone's in the highest office, you know, you don't start running them down like President uh, Obama or, you know, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court or some other high authority. You shouldn't do that against God's ministers. You may find that maybe... A minister makes a mistake, but try to respect the office. It's the office that comes from God that you're to respect. That's what God is watching. He wants us to do that, brethren. And then uh, the uh, seventh point is that a true Christian respects Satan and never gets bitter. A true Christian, did I say respects? I mean resists Satan. There I go again. And I found myself saying things at times like this that I normally wouldn't. Anyway, a true Christian resists Satan and he never gets bitter as you will find uh, back here in uh, in 1 Peter 5, if you turn there. In 1 Peter chapter 5, brethren, it says here, verse 5, Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. God wants us to humble ourselves. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Understand that. He is a real being. He is alive. He will try to pick off you. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace who called us into eternal glory, that's into, 
should be by Christ Jesus, notice, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we are to resist the devil, and we are never to become bitter. And the bitterness will kill you if you ever let that get on you. I have some scriptures, but I'll leave that out. Now let's go to the eighth point, which I was kind of skipping here. A true Christian, finally, actively seeks God. A true Christian actively seeks God and yields to Christ to live his life in him. And I'll just give you my favorite scripture on that because to save time, but I could give you many more. Galatians 2.20 I am crucified with Christ, Paul wrote, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live with the faith of, not just in, the Greek is of, the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. A true Christian seeks a relationship with God. In other words, if you try to study every day to get that relationship firmer, if you try to pray to God on your knees every day to walk with Christ, as I mentioned in my last sermon, to have a relationship with Christ and build that, if you meditate on this Word, and then you fast as a tool to get you closer to God. And then every day you try to exercise God's Spirit and walk with God and walk with Christ and let Christ live His life in you and seek Him. He that seeks God. You know, that's the key thing throughout the Bible. The true servants of God were trying to seek God. They would walk with God, talk with God. Enoch walked with God. Noah walked with God. Abraham walked with God. I had scriptures on each one of those. They did. And you've got to walk with God. And then God tells you, as you know, in a number of places in the Old Testament, I think it's in the Elijah Oratorio, it was a beautiful aria, if with all your heart you seek Him, you shall surely find Him. But you've got to seek God. He's not going to come and grab you and make you do anything. But if you seek God, and pray to God and cry out to God for Him and Christ to come and live their lives in you through the Holy Spirit, you see, then they will do that. And that walk with God will make you walk right on over, having your hand in Christ's hand into the kingdom of God. Those eight steps are steps into the kingdom of God. Those eight markers describe a true Christian. Let's all try to do that with all of our hearts And then we will be much more likely to honor God, to be in the place of safety, and most of all, to fulfill the purpose for which God has created us, the purpose for which God has called us, the purpose for which God has blessed us, and He will bring us into His everlasting kingdom.